You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I want to I personally thank all the frontline workers who are on this call. Um, you, you really are our heroes. Um, when we are uh, abiding by our government's request that we uh, stay at home and not leave for our own protection, you are, you are abiding also by the government's request to keep doing your job, to go out, uh, not just to meet your friends, but to, to actually go to the sick, uh, to go where the risk is greatest. And um, you just have my highest respect. Um, I, I thank God for your courage and for your self-sacrificing Love. It was great to hear from, from those who were able to, to share about their experience this morning. Um, well, before we begin our time in the Word, uh, let me just pray for, for uh, the preaching of God's Word. Father, we have heard many voices in our world this week, in the past weeks. Um, we have spent a lot of time on the news um, hearing commentary by experts and doctors, and, and that has been helpful. Um, but what we need most of all is to hear from your voice, to hear uh, the God of the universe, the God of creation, the God of the cross address us. Um, we, we need you to guide our thinking and to lead our affections so that we would not be afraid but uh, live in full faith that you are with us, you are for us, and that you will sustain your people through this pandemic. And so we pray, Father, that as I, as I begin to preach your word, uh, that your people's faith would be strengthened, that our love for you would deepen, and uh, that we would all listen to the Spirit and his leading to heed how we can uh, respond as the church uh, to the suffering that is around us. Uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, earlier this week, I engaged in a little uh, exercise to try to project the seriousness of COVID-19 to us as Canadians. Some of you may have accessed the uh, resource on John Hopkins University, which tracks the global cases um, around the world. Um, and uh, Canada is 15th on that list. We are, we are under the cases that we hear about often in the news. You know, the U.S. is leading the way right now with, I think, a little over 120,000 known cases. China, Italy, Spain, Germany, Iran, those are the ones that we hear about often uh, in the news. Um, Canada is 15th, um, and it's, it's, so it's, it's below those kind of heavy spots in the world. But believe it or not, we actually have more cases than countries like Australia, Brazil, Japan, Russia, and India. Now, again, as Ferdy reminded us, that's only a matter of the cases that are known. Um, there may be many cases that are unknown. But when it comes to cases that are known, uh, when we're talking about Canada, um, I was reminded that last Sunday, March 22nd, Canada only had 1,400 known cases. The latest statistics in Canada um, are that uh, we have at least 5,600 known cases at this time. That's an increase of, of four times. It's 400%. And 
And so if this rate of spread continues, that is assuming that the rate of spread doesn't actually increase, but it just stays the same, next week, uh, four times 5,600 is 22,000 cases. And the week after that will be 89,000 cases. And the week after that will be 358,000 cases. And that's only in three weeks. And that's only the known cases. As I think about that, it really is, um, it really is striking what could happen in our country. Um, when our healthcare workers are already burdened, when their supplies are already lacking, when the hospitals are already full, we can only imagine what will happen uh, in three weeks if this continues. And that's only the impact on our health. I mean, what about the impact on our economy? Every day I'm hearing about people who have lost their jobs. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife and I went in for our scheduled ultrasound. Um, we're about 21 weeks pregnant now with our sixth child. Um, and we're thankful that we were still able to, to have an ultrasound. Um, the ultrasound tech there was amazing. She was so professional. She had been working on the job for 19 years. And that was her last week of work before she was laid off. Um, I've been in contact with a, uh, a publishing company to get books directly from the printer. So I don't have to pay Amazon or, uh, you know, the, the third-party fees. I can get it directly from a salesperson who has a access to giant warehouses that are direct from the printer. And uh, I made a couple orders last week. And on, on Wednesday, my contact had to say, well, um, uh, I just need to know, you to know that I've, I've just lost my job. So you'll have to uh, look somewhere else for your books. That, that's happening not just around us, but within our own community. You know, people in our church are losing their jobs. People in our church have had to shut down their businesses. People in our church have lost huge chunks of their retirement savings and investments. And if you think the situation is bad now, um, there is no indication, at least not right now, that it's going to get any better. Uh, in times like these, the question that we need to ask as Christians is, what does God have to say about all of this? You're not going to find the answer to that question by reading the news. If you're like me, you've probably spent far too much time reading the news and not enough time reading uh, our Bibles. And the result is that we're being led actually to respond to COVID-19 in the same way as the rest of the world. And that is with fear, with anxiety, with a view of the world as if God is not part of it at all. And that's why our meetings together are so important. Uh, on Sunday mornings and in the middle of the week, we, we need to fix our eyes together on God's word and be reminded of what God has to say about this situation to be reminded that God is not silent. He has spoken into this crisis, and he has given us exactly what we need to not only understand this pandemic from a biblical perspective, but to endure it with faith rather than fear. I think some of you here on this call may not know what you believe about God. If that's you, I want to welcome you to our service and invite you to come along on this journey with us. And I want you to consider that perhaps God is, is using these, these unprecedented times to get your attention. You know, in normal life, we are so caught up with our regular daily routines. We have our social network, we have our entertainment, we have our sports, we have our restaurants, but God has stripped all that away. 
And perhaps now is the time for us to ask and try to answer the deeper questions in life. Who is God? What does he want from me? What does the Bible say about pandemics? And how does the Bible equip me and empower me to get through this time of uncertainty and fear? Those are important questions. And you're probably not going to find the answers in one service. But if you take some time in this uh historical time in the history of the world, uh, perhaps you'll not only find the answers to your questions, but find God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And so if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at a number of verses in the middle of what is called uh, the greatest letter ever written and the greatest chapter within that letter. Uh, Romans chapter 8 is, uh, contains some of the most beautiful, comforting truths in Scripture, particularly when it comes to suffering. If you don't have a Bible, all our verses are going to be pre- projected on our screen. Uh, thank you, by the way, uh, to John Cleditis for so capably managing our Zoom operations for our service this morning. I'm going to be reading Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. This is the word of the Lord. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Well, the title of this sermon is simply Enduring COVID-19. Enduring COVID-19. And let me say at the outset that this is not going to be a practical sermon. This is not about things that we need to do or not to do. When it comes to enduring COVID-19 and managing the spread of COVID-19, all of the practical things are on the news. I cannot improve on the advice that we've received by the capable doctors who are Um, speaking into our situation. This is not a practical sermon. This is a theological sermon. It's in times like these that what we need is strong doctrine. We need a theological lens through which we can understand this pandemic and endure this pandemic as God speaks into the situation. And so uh, we're going to have three points today. Um, True hope, true God, and true restoration. Uh, Really simple outline, true hope, true God, and true restoration. Uh, One of the things I love about the Bible is how often it speaks about our suffering. You know, the Bible is not a book that sugarcoats life. It doesn't tell us that everything is going to work out the way that we want it to or expect it to. It's not the kind of book that tells us that life's not hard 
and that um, the way that we envision life is going to be how it unfolds. No, the, the Bible is real about suffering. And it shows us how it understands suffering by putting um, Jesus Christ not only reigning on his throne, but crucified on a cross at the very center of the Bible's plot line. The heart of our faith is not the empty tomb of the resurrection. The heart of our faith is the cross, the cross where Jesus bled and died for sinners to show that Jesus not only came to suffer for us, but Jesus came to suffer with us. The cross reminds us that we don't have a God who dispassionately observes our suffering from a distance. That the cross reminds us that instead we have a God who has tasted our suffering himself. And so every loss, every pain, every sorrow that we experience, God has experienced personally. And as one who has tasted suffering personally, he has given us countless resources to understand and to endure our suffering in his holy word. Our text today is one of those resources. It's a passage that helps us to understand and to endure suffering. And the heart of the message of our text today is found in the first verse, in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If you boil down what the Apostle Paul is saying here in this verse, is it, he's, he's talking about the power of hope. He's talking about the power of hope. Now, hope won't take away our suffering, but hope will take away the anxieties and fears that are produced by our suffering. It, it puts our suffering into perspective. And when it does that, it helps us to, to endure it and to not be weighed down by it. You could say that hope is a bridge between our future glories and our present realities. It brings some of that future glory that awaits us into our present experience uh, so that we will receive grace to endure it. It doesn't take long when you read through the scriptures, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, to see that hope is a crucial element of our faith. Verse 24 actually says that in this hope, we were saved. Hope is one of the benefits of our salvation. It's one of the benefits that Christ has purchased for us. We were saved in hope, and we are meant to live in daily hope. It says in verse 25 that we wait for our hope with patience. It is meant to be a daily means of grace to sustain us in our times of suffering. The Bible actually calls hope one of the three greatest virtues for a Christian to pursue. You'll know this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in the chapter that we know as the love chapter in the Bible. Well, it says this in verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, the chapter is about love, and we don't want to minimize the value of, of love. It is the highest virtue for the Christian to pursue. But, but this verse and this chapter is not at all meant to minimize the value of faith or hope. It's exalting all three. In fact, all three are called the three theological virtues of the Christian faith. Hope is a pillar of the Christian life. And if we are to thrive as Christians, we are to thrive in hope. Now, my fear is that um, many in my generation and perhaps those in the generation before me and the generation that has come after me, 
um, have largely forgotten the value of hope. Love we know, faith we know, but a true Christian hope has largely been abandoned. You think about what we usually talk about when we talk about our hopes and dreams. We, we use the language of hope, don't we? We talk about hopes and dreams, and what we're usually referring to are our hopes of the, the vacation that we want to go on, or the retirement that we're going to one day enjoy, or the hopes that we have for what our family is going to look like in the future. Uh, our hopes are bound up in this world, but true Christian hope isn't bound up in this world. It, is, it extends into the world to come. True Christian hope is the hope of our resurrection. True Christian hope is the hope of, of, of the return of Christ. True Christian hope is the hope of eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth, where we will live with God in perfect, unending fellowship. True Christian hope is meant to be a daily source of encouragement and comfort. And yet, how we treat our hope instead is we, we treat it like if, as if it's the get-out-of-jail-free card in Monopoly. But when we need it, we kind of search around like, oh, okay, we, we got it. And when we don't need it, we just kind of put it away and we forget about it. And we live life uh, as if we don't have a glorious future to look forward to. And the question is, is, why is that the case? Why has hope diminished in its value and importance to our daily lives? Well, I believe that there are at least two reasons. The first is because of the criticism of the world, the criticism of the world. You may have heard the saying that, that some people are so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly good. Have you heard that before? Some people are so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. The world is, is leveling this criticism to people who are just saying, well, God's going to fix everything eventually. Um, one day, God is going to make everything right, so let's not bother trying to bring about justice or bring about righteousness in this world. We'll just leave it to God. It's certainly a possibility that some Christians may, may apply Christian hope in that way. But I, I need you to know that that is not true Christian hope. It's not. Uh, true Christian hope isn't idle. It isn't passive. Instead, true Christian hope actually works itself out in love. It's just like faith. We know that faith without works is dead. But we also need to know that, that hope without works is dead as well. These three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love are meant to work together to result in good works that will open the door to gospel opportunities. And we see that just as an example in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul says this, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, listen, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We see all three theological virtues in this verse. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Faith is working. Love is laboring. And steadfast hope is supplying the fuel for that work and for that labor. The early Christians were, were devoting themselves to self-sacrificing acts of love and service because of their steadfastness of hope. They knew that death was not the end of their lives. Death was only the beginning of true life. It was the door through which they would 
walk through so that they would experience everlasting joy in God's presence. C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. Hope does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. My friends, if we are to engage the world, if we are to have the same courage as our dear brothers and sisters who are on the front lines, the remedy to engaging the world isn't less hope. It's more hope. We, we can't let the world dictate to us what's important. Only God dictates to us what we are to pursue, what we are to cultivate. And that means growing in the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. Here's the second reason why I think hope has diminished in our day. It's our material prosperity. It's our material prosperity. Um, <clears throat> you know, we, we, our hope for heaven thins out and disappears because it feels like we're already pretty close to paradise. I mean, who, who longs for heaven when it feels like heaven is already here? We live in one of the most prosperous countries in the world. And that's something that we should be thankful for. I don't want to criticize us for that. I mean, we were, many of us were born in Canada. Our parents immigrated to, to Canada. We, we enjoy the, the health and the prosperity that we enjoy in our country. But we need to recognize that one of the effects of our prosperity or one of the temptations that our prosperity poses to us is that it has given us very little reason to meditate on hope. COVID-19 is changing that isn't it? It's stripping away our worldly sources of comfort and hope and forcing us to see just how fragile they are. If our hopes are bound up in this world, then we're not going to do very well because hope is what keeps us going. Hope is the fuel that keeps us burning. So if you put our hopes in the wrong thing, then we're not going to persevere. But if we put our hope in the Lord, in his triumphant return, in our future resurrection, and in our glorious eternal relationship with him, then we will not only endure these days, but we will uh, get through them with boldness and faith. I believe that that's one of the ways that the Lord is using this pandemic. He's using it to shake up our false hopes so that the true hope of uh, of, of his of Christ's return and of our resurrection and of our eternal relationship and fellowship with God would take its place at the center of our hearts as it was meant to. It could be that you've been hoping in your retirement or you've been hoping in a pain-free life or you've been hoping in the growth of your business or you've been hoping in your career ambitions. If it's been any of those things, then the Lord is, is speaking to you through this pandemic. In this moment in the world's history, when the world has shut down, to remind you that none of those hopes are sufficient. All of those hopes will disappoint you. Because if COVID-19 has taught us anything, it is that God can strip away our worldly hopes in an instant. My friends, let us not put our hopes in this world. Let us put our hopes in God. Because true hope in God is the only thing that will give us peace about our future. Now, what Paul does next in the remaining verses in our text is he makes an argument um, where he's trying to highlight how 
important and significant and weighty and glorious our hope truly is. In order to do that, he makes an argument that is of cosmic proportions. And, and as he does that, he reaches into the very nature of God himself. And that leads to our second point, true God. True God. In verses 19 to 22, Paul is showing us how great our hope is by saying that, that even creation, the, the, the heavens and the earth, the, the stars in the sky, the, the rocky mountains, the vast oceans, even creation shares the same hope as us. Now, we need to know that, that Paul is making a poetic argument here because creation doesn't actually have hopes. Creation doesn't have a will. We're not talking about Mother Earth like some pantheists would, would talk about. Rocks aren't waiting for anything, let alone the revealing of the sons of God. Um, but what we see throughout Scripture is that creation is often personified. We see that in the book of Psalms, uh, which talks about trees clapping their hands. Jesus talks about rocks shouting out his praise. And that here, Paul talks about creation groaning and longing for humanity to be restored. But in the middle of this poetic argument, this illustration that Paul's trying to, to make to highlight the glory of our hope, Paul may actually makes some important theological points about creation. For example, in verse 20, he says that creation was subjected to futility. Subjected to futility. Um, our, our futility, um, the word here can also be translated as as vanity or emptiness. It's the word that the Bible uses to talk about the fleeting nature of this world. The, the flowers fade and the grass withers. Creation um, fades, withers, and dies. Verse 21 says the same thing. It says, creation is in bondage to corruption. Creation, it doesn't last. It is subject to corruption. Living things die. Animals eat each other and die of old age. Mighty trees rocks and topple over sturdy rocks weather away with time creation is futile in vain because it's full of death and corruption now we know this and in fact the world knows this we just don't like talking about it we, we know that death is a reality uh, we just try to ignore it uh, but paul's true insight here isn't actually about that. It isn't about what creation is. It's about why creation is the way it is. Look again at verse 20. He says that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Paul's saying creation didn't do this to itself. This, this characterization of corruption is not creation's natural state. Creation didn't choose uh, to be prone to death and decay. It was put in that state by the one who subjected it. And of course, he's talking about God. God is the one who has put creation in bondage to corruption and made it subject to death. Now, if you know your Bible, you'll know that Paul's not saying anything new here. Um, in fact, it was back in the first book in the Bible, Genesis in chapter three, that God curses the ground. He curses the ground shortly after our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against him and led to a spiraling, um, unraveling away of all of creation. And when God cursed the ground, we need to recognize that, that he wasn't just 
making it hard for crops to grow. Okay, God isn't biased towards farmers. And the farmers on this call are happy to hear that. Like God was cursing creation itself. And he's making it so that none of creation would function the way that it was meant to, from the wind in the sky to the waves in the sea to the bugs in the ground. All of it is subjected to futility and corruption. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's making a massive statement about God's nature. He's telling us that as COVID-19 spreads around the world, God isn't just watching what's going on. God is ruling over what is going on. This is, this is his choice. He has subjected creation to futility and put it in a bondage to corruption. God's sovereign omnipotent rule extends over all of creation so that nothing happens except through him and by his will. And that includes this pandemic. And that includes any future pandemics our world may face. God never does evil, nor is he tempted to do evil, but he ordains evil in such a way that even evil itself accomplishes his purposes. I mean, if we're ever tempted to doubt that, all we need to do is look at the cross. The Bible tells us repeatedly that, that God not only used the cross, but he ordained it. It was part of his plan. And without the cross, we would not have received the redemption of our bodies and the forgiveness of sin. This is what Christians over the centuries have called the doctrine of God's providence. The doctrine of God's providence. Uh, we also know it as the doctrine of God's sovereignty. I'm going to refer to it as, as the doctrine of God's providence. And, and the doctrine of God's providence is what we need most of all in times like this. Because, listen, we need to know that God is in control, even when we are not. We need to know that, that God isn't just an exalted version of us, so that if we're not in control, then we're tempted to believe that God is not in control. No, God, God is completely holy. He is, he is other. He is separate from us, and his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is in control even when we are not. He knows what he is doing even when we do not. We need the doctrine of God's providence. And nothing captures the doctrine of God's providence better and more eloquently than the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, this is my favorite part in the Catechism, and I'm sure it is, that is the case for many of you as well. Uh, question 27 says, what do you understand by the providence of God? And this is the wonderful definition that the Catechism has given us. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. All things, all things come to us, not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand whether we are in fruitful years or barren years, whether we are in health or whether we are in sickness, all of it comes to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. My friends, we may be in a season of sickness, but the doctrine of God's providence reminds us that we can be confident that even this, as hard as it 
is on us. Even this comes to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. The next question in the Catechism asks us what benefit the doctrine of God's providence is. It says, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? And it says this, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. Now, we don't know why God has ordained this pandemic, but God's providence tells us that we don't need to know. We don't need to know why. We only need to know that nothing can move, not nations, not armies, not viruses, apart from the will of God. And we know what God's will is, isn't it? God's will is to work all things, all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. For the Christian, this is good news, for the Christian, God's hand of providence is also his hand of fatherly love. And so let us be patient in this adversity. God will use this pandemic for our good. And when that good is accomplished, he will take this pandemic away. We have our true hope. We have our true God. Lastly, we look forward to our true restoration. Creation is waiting for its full and final restoration. Verse 20 actually says that creation was subjected in hope. Even when it was subjected, it was subjected in hope, the hope of being set free from its bondage to corruption. The earth is longing for the day when it no longer produces pandemics, the day when viruses no longer spread and kill and destroy. The earth is waiting with eager anticipation and hope for the day when God lifts it from its futility and frees it from its bondage to corruption and leads it into true and full restoration. But that day is not going to come until something else happens first. Verse 19, it says that creation is waiting, not just for its own revealing, but for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 21, similarly, it says it's, it, creation is not just hoping for the day when it obtains its own freedom, but for the day when it obtains the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is, in other words, it's waiting for the restoration of humanity. Because um, without the restoration of humanity, there will be no restoration of creation. Among all the things that God has made, human beings, men and women, boys and girls, alone are made in God's image. We are given a dignity and place and station in creation that none of uh, the rest of creation enjoys. And as those who are made in God's image, God has given us the responsibility to steward creation. That means that our prosperity will lead to creation's prosperity. And our failing would lead to creation's failing. The Bible teaches us that we, we have failed. And it has led to the suffering and unraveling of creation itself. So when we look around the world and we see how it seems like the world has fallen apart. You know, when we look at those maps of the world and we see those blotches of red indicating how far the coronavirus has spread in that country, we see them spreading day by day. 
We're meant to say, that's because of our sin. We are responsible for what is happening in creation. This is a reminder that, that all of us as, as human beings made in God's image who have sinned, fall under God's judgment and creation is suffering for it. But there is hope. And it's not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of what, who God is and what God has done for us in Christ. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to suffer our judgment on our behalf on the cross for our sins so that everyone who believes in him would not only be forgiven of their sins and restored in a, to a, a right relationship with God as his sons and his daughters, but, but restored fully in our nature and in our bodies. You know, my, we've got to remember that the Christian hope isn't just that we'll go to heaven when we die. That is a wonderful truth. It is a comforting truth, but it is an insufficient way of capturing what our Christian hope truly is. God hasn't just promised eternal life for those who trust in Christ. He's promised the restoration of all things. He's promised to restore our bodies, to restore our fallen sinful nature, to restore our broken relationships, to restore creation itself so that everything in creation will be healed and restored and brought back into its glorious existence. That is our hope. We're not just hoping to flatten the curve. We're not just hoping to mitigate COVID spread or to see the economy rebound. Those are good things to hope for, and we pray for those things. But they're not the best things to hope for. The best thing to hope for is the day when God will rid the world of everything, absolutely everything that's broken and corrupt, in our world, once and for all, the day when there will be no more pandemics, no more tsunamis, no more earthquakes, no more cancer, no more dementia, no more murder, no more death, no more sin. Christ himself will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And he will restore everything that he has made. And until that day comes, we are meant to hope for that day. In this hope, we were saved. And hope that is seen is no hope at all. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And we wait for it, especially in times of suffering. Because God takes our suffering and he uses it to deepen our hope. He deepens our hope so that when we finally receive our hope, when we finally see what we do not yet see, we would respond to the fulfillment of our hope with deeper joy and deeper gratitude and deeper jubilation when he comes to restore all things. Now you'll notice, I wonder if you've ever asked the question in verse 22, why Paul describes the groaning of creation as the pains of childbirth. The groanings of creation are the pains of childbirth. But what happens at the end of childbirth? Well, life happens. Something glorious and joy-giving happens. The, the groans of creation are not the pains of death. Creation is not in its death throes. The groans of creation are ushering in the new era when everything will be made new and life and life abundant will fill our lives once more. We are not in the pains of death. We are in the pains of childbirth. Creation is groaning 
In verse 23, he says that we groan as well. Not only the creation, it says, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We are groaning along with creation because we are also subjected to futility. We are also in bondage to corruption. Our bodies, they get sick and they die. Our loved ones perish. Our, our work, our labors in building our businesses and our work in our, our, for our employers, um, it, it, it fades away and our businesses go bankrupt and shut down. But all of it, all of this pain is the pains not of death, but of childbirth. It is merely preparing the way for everlasting joy. Jesus said this in John chapter 16. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. My friends, if there's anyone here on this call who does not yet know Jesus, I want to invite you to heed his words, his invitation to know him, to trust him, to find your hope, not in the things of the world, but in Christ who has died on the cross, who has risen to eternal life, the first fruits of the resurrection, securing for us a glorious, eternal, never-ending reality. A world without Christ is a world without hope because it's only, um, it's only hope is here in a world that could fall apart in an instant. You know, if you're, you are a skeptic, then you must admit that your worldview does not give your pain any meaning. There is no purpose behind COVID-19. It's just a random event. It's just something that happened to take place in human history. You might even say that it's natural. It's just an organic process that is achieving the results of, of survival of the fittest, where the fit survive and the weak do not. Now, you may be able to live with that burden, but I can't. I can't accept that the world as it is, is what it was meant to be. I believe with the generations of Christians before me that it was meant for something better, a reality that is free from pain and suffering and sorrow. And one day, creation will enter that reality when Christ restores all things. And so I invite you to come. Come to Christ. Put your faith in him. Seek the answers to your questions. Trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins and join us as we live in hope for that day of full restoration. And to my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, what God is doing is he's calling us to abound in hope, to walk not just in faith, but in hope. Don't let this pandemic lead you to despair. Don't let it cause you to be discouraged when you think about the future. Let, us, let, it, let this pandemic give rise in our hearts to a greater and purer hope for the day when Christ makes all things new. And on that day, when Christ makes all things new, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for all the former things, 
all the pandemics, all the sorrow will pass away and death itself shall be put to death. Let us abound in hope and let our hope work itself out in love, love for one another, love for our neighbors and love for anyone we come across. Let us share what we have. Let us give to those who are in need. Let us reach out to the lonely and let us wait for that glorious day when Christ restores all things. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this glorious hope that when we consider what we have to look forward to, all the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. They are minuscule and will one day fade into the background of eternity. But for now, we, we pray that some of the goodness of this hope would come to us now and um, fill our vision so that we would not see this pandemic the same way that the world sees it, but to see it through your eyes in the grand picture of redemption history as something that you are not only using, but you have ordained for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people. We pray that you would glorify yourself through this pandemic and lead us to see that glory and to respond with joy that no one can ever take from us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.